0: Thanks for being with us on this uh, Tuesday afternoon. We've been talking a lot about homelessness in Metro Vancouver and that in addition to the COVID-19 pandemic, the calls, the attempts to get people who were living in tents, be it in Oppenheimer Park and other tent encampments, trying to get people either into hotels, into temporary housing, preferably permanent housing. But there are still some homeless camps in Metro Vancouver. It certainly has been a topic at the Vancouver Park Board. As you know, they amended the bylaw allowing some tents in public parks with a number of rules. What does this mean, though, as far as long-term goals when it comes to housing? And what does making people pack up their tents and move on every day do when it comes to homelessness? Well, let's bring in Stephen Wood, Professor and Canada Research Chair in Law Society Institute Sustainability at the University of British Columbia. Thanks so much for being with us.
1: Thank you. Uh,
0: you've written about this, saying that the displacement of homeless people must stop, um, whether or not we're in a pandemic. What What are the reasons that you've written about that?
1: Yeah. Well, there are. Se- <coughs> pardon me. There are several reasons, Jill. Um, the most important is that. Moving daily or even um, weekly or monthly is really bad for one's health. And we're talking about uh, people who are already in one of uh, the most vulnerable categories of people in our society in terms of vulnerability to health problems and economic marginalization. The courts in Canada have accepted, it's not a matter of opinion, it's really well-established evidence that continual displacement is bad for mental health, it's bad for physical health, it causes great strain, it disconnects people from family, from friends, from services that they need, and it pushes them in this cycle of moving to uh, more and more isolated and dangerous situations.
0: But when we look at Oppenheimer for an example of an encampment that stayed in place for a lengthy period of time, uh, it wasn't. It's not as though that was a safe place for everybody who lived there. I mean, there were assaults. There were some horrific uh, cases of abuse that came out of that camp. There were weapons. There were shootings. Uh, that didn't. Even even though people there weren't being displaced, that wasn't a safe environment for a lot of people.
1: Well, yeah, and there's some truth to that. It's a really difficult. Issue area for for us to get our minds around, but the fact is that homeless encampments do provide stability, security, safety for many of their residents, overdose protection, and a place to store your stuff during the day. Um, there are uh, harms that come with it as well, um, but you know you have to take those in perspective. It's not clear that those harms are worse than they would be otherwise without the encampments, but rather that the camps make these problems more visible. For example, calls to police. We know that calls to police went up in the time that the Oppenheimer Park camp grew, but even at their highest in 2019, they were still lower at a per capita level than numerous other Vancouver neighbourhoods. And there's uh, a lot of issues around perception, too. If you ask people, are those camps safe places, it really depends who you ask. There's very differing perceptions. For many people who live and visit there and volunteer there, they are safe places. And for many people, uh, they they are not. Um, And I think there's a real danger of um, asking the wrong people what the real situation is. And actually, this is a point I think is really important. I'm an expert in law and policy, and I understand those things, but I'm not an expert in homelessness. Who are the experts in homelessness? The people with lived experience of homelessness. And I think we need to really listen to them and what they are saying about experiences of homelessness, the harms and benefits of homeless camps, uh, etc.,
0: is there a way to and I get what you're saying it's it's people with the lived experience that know exactly what it's like to be in a camp like this I mean one of the issues though is is why there's so much pushback I think to camps is though is because it's not uh, a great place that you walk by and you see people making the best of it or you see like you said uh, places uh, where uh, there's testing where there's monitoring where people can go for for to make sure that they're not they don't overdose uh, they turn into places though where people talk about the needles that are strewn about where yep. there's garbage. Uh, they're mm-hmm. not these these clean or these, these they're not places where, where I don't think people would be putting up their hands and saying, yes, please let's put one up in my neighborhood. So how do we make it that yes, uh, everybody can kind of coexist and these can exist without people just wanting them to be gone?
1: Well, it'll always be difficult. And certainly the main goal is housing for all and recognition of a right to housing and giving effect to that right. But the fact is that for the foreseeable future, there will be unhoused citizens in uh, our midst. And the question is, how do we handle that? Do we handle that by pushing them farther and farther to the margins where they are alone and unsafe? Uh, Or do we handle it by having different levels of government get together with the homeless communities, with indigenous organizations, with local residents, to figure out how to make the best of a very bad situation. And in my view, and many people's view, that means recognizing that they have to have somewhere stable to build community and not to be moved on every day.
0: Uh, when the pandemic first started, the, the Oppenheimer camp was was closed down with the promise yep. that anybody who needed housing could move into a hotel or would be offered housing. And there was, there was a form of housing available, which I think on the surface to a lot of people looked like a reasonable solution to, to be made so quickly as the pandemic hit. But there was a ton of pushback by people saying, well, now people are going to be using drugs alone in their hotel rooms. Overdoses are going to be up. This doesn't work, which I think then led to people saying, well, then what do we do in the short term? Because for many, I think, would think a hotel scenario of housing would be better than a homeless camp.
1: Yeah, you would think that, wouldn't you? Um, and, you know, you've got to applaud the province and the other levels of government for making the efforts they did to house as many of those people as possible. But there, it was still uh, rife with problems There was inadequate consultation of people with experience of homelessness in the planning. Um, There were people in the rush to put people into housing. Yeah, people were separated from their uh, sort of health care providers. Some, I understand, sort of felt pressure not to disclose substance use issues. And we saw the terrible statistics in May and June of the highest overdose deaths ever in, recorded in the province and that had something to do with this isolation this aloneness caused by the response to COVID-19 so all these things were combining together um, to, to make it a really problematic exercise even though it's the yeah definitely it's the right idea.
0: Uh, So what do you think should happen then with, we still have a tent and encampment in Strathcona Mm -hmm. Park in Vancouver. There are other uh, smaller encampments uh, throughout Metro Vancouver. Uh, We've now seen the park board uh, amend the bylaw saying, yes, you can camp, but you have to leave in the morning. What do you think the next move should be?
1: Well, I think there's three things that uh, the park board and other levels of government should do immediately. One is follow the public health advice and suspend displacement or decampment of homeless people during the pandemic because it is just bad policy from a public health perspective. Uh, Secondly, launch the consultations that the park board should have done but didn't do. They didn't speak to people with homeless experiences. They didn't speak to Indigenous organizations or the three local First Nations on whose unceded land the parks sit. And then so uh, launch those consultations. And third, um, say that the, they are going to exercise the power under the new bylaws to designate a place for daytime, nighttime shelter and ask the relevant people to come to the table to talk about where that can happen and how. It may be on park board land or it may not. It may need to be on city land, despite the mayor's uh, strong opposition to uh, dedicated encampments. But I think those are the three things that ought to happen right now.
0: All right. We'll leave it there for now. Wood, thanks so much for your time today.
1: Thank you uh, for the interest.
0: Well, we know yesterday our provincial health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, said that she has some concerns when looking at the new modelling numbers and the number of cases of COVID-19 we've seen during the past three days. BC health officials are once again saying people need to maintain small social circles after the modelling numbers show. We could see some explosive growth in those numbers if we continue on the same trend. So taking a closer look at the numbers, we are now joined by Canada one five zero Research Chair in Mathematics for Infection, Evolution, and Public Health. Carolyn Col. thank you so much for being with us.: Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, what do you uh, take by these numbers uh, that uh, show uh, the, the the growth that we've seen and these concerns uh, from Dr. Henry that we could see a surge if this continues?
2: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And the thing to realize about these models and we think about how infectious disease works in the real world is that It's either growing exponentially or it's not, for sure, in the models and probably also in the world. So you see a few cases in sort of slow growth, but then you see more and more, and that's the explosive growth, that cases can make more cases and then even more and then even more. And so if if we don't have that R number below 1 or if we don't have a decline,
0: then we may see exponential growth and it may get very hard to contain. And is that when you talk about the R number, that is that that's how many people one case all then goes on to infect?
2: Yeah, exactly. That's well, it's kind of a, an approximation because, of course, the you know, it takes maybe a week or two to go through your infectious course. So if that number is a daily number, then, you know, it, it's sort of a, a ballpark estimate of that. But definitely, if it's above one, we're seeing it means we're seeing growth. And if it's below one, we're seeing a decline. And uh In the trajectory, like just the the line that goes through the cases and you see it growing. uh, And in that R number, those are kind of consistent pictures that uh, we are seeing the beginnings of growth. I think Dr. Henry's point about small groups is a really good one. One of the reasons we've done well in BC is our ability to do contact tracing. So if you're in a bar with 50 people that you don't know, it's very, very hard for public health to find who those people are. Whereas if you're with three family members... Um, then it's much easier. So that's one of the messages, too. And I think that's one of the tools we use to keep that growth down. But it is very concerning to see that growth uh, in B.C. and also in other parts of Canada.
0: Uh, we also saw the numbers yesterday uh, presented showing that 20% of people with COVID-19 who are in long-term care, the, the death rate, uh, I think, was 20%, 22% in acute care units. And thankfully, I mean, and, and as, as expected, it drops dramatically when we go to the rest of remaining people with COVID-19 in the community. Uh, but were you surprised at all by those numbers, by that death rate in those scenarios? That did seem high, um, and I think that's because it is a, a vulnerable
2: and at-risk population. Uh, I think we also have to remember that COVID-19 can be really serious in adults who don't die. Uh, it can cause really long-term and serious neurological and heart and other organ problems and organ damage so we should be concerned about mortality, of course, because that's obviously the most severe outcome. But I think we should not be complacent if we're in a group that isn't at such high risk. Um, I think we may see those percents go down as as we see more and more cases in the general adult population. Well, I hope we don't. I hope we don't see more and more cases in the general adult population, because that would mean we have more uncontrolled spread, which we really, really must try to avoid. Um, but, yeah, those are high numbers, and I think it reflects the, the settings where the transmission
0: had happened in B.C. I think I found it interesting, too, taking a look. And as much as we know that the majority of people haven't had this illness, haven't, haven't contracted COVID-19, but when you look at the number when it says less than 1 in 100 in B.C. have been infected, on the one hand, that's good. That means we're doing our job. But it also shows how susceptible we also are to the infection.
2: That's exactly right. We are not different in an epidemiological way than we were in early March. We don't it's not the case that half of BC has has been exposed and when we're good to go, we haven't seen, you know, the end of a wave and now we get to wait and maybe there's a different wave. In terms of the epidemiology, it's kind of all the same wave and we halted it in its tracks with distancing and with great contact tracing and other control measures. But that leaves us kind of in Well, I say we're in the same position, you know, you and I are in the same position. Public health has increased capacity, they have kind of more capacity for contact tracing, they have more experience. But um, still, you know, this disease could still spread like wildfire as, as, you know, we don't want to see that. And that's why Dr. Henry's
0: urging such caution. And when we talk about the the average person's contacts, and uh, Dr. Henry talked about sixty five percent being really where we sh- where we should be pushing it that not to go above that, but that right now we're probably at about sixty five to seventy, is that kind of the magical zone when it comes to a virus that can spread this way and and the virus, how it acts, how we know what we know about it so far that that sixty five is what we've worked out as as the number of, of the, the the pushing it level? Yeah, so that's what
2: our model estimates is the critical threshold, and that's based on most people in BC being willing and able to participate in distancing, and it's based on a bunch of other parameters where we do the best we can. You know, duration of infectious period and incubation period and uh, transmission parameters and these kinds of things, which we estimated by fitting those most of them carefully to data and getting them from the literature where we couldn't. So there's some uncertainty around that number and. Um, there's also differences between different people. Some people's normal level of contact is one a week, and other people's normal level of contact might be 30 to 40 people a week. And clearly, the the one a week person, you know, reducing that to 65% uh, doesn't make as much difference as the person who is seeing 30 people a week regularly. Right. And then, of course, you have key workers who, who, by necessity, can't be completely distanced. You know, so working in an essential service or a grocery store or something. Um, so then that's where the masks and the keeping two meters apart and like those <clears throat> things really come into play. So it's a complicated picture, but basically, yeah, that's where we think the critical number is. And where if we go too much above that, the we see exponential growth. And I think the, the thing about exponential growth is it can look slow at the start. And then it really, in terms of number of cases per day, that fraction really can ramp up very, very quickly. And that's what we want to avoid.
0: Because could we be in a scenario, too, when and you talk about contact tracing and Dr. Henry has talked about how important that is and important to do it quickly. But if if we see that happen, the surge again, like you said, maybe it start, starts off slow and then and then takes off. If we get to the point where we don't know where people are getting the virus, does that not also bring in the the chance of asymptomatic people spreading it and we lose all control over figuring out where it is?
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's the concern. I think that's the fear is if we can't trace the context, and if we get to a point where we're having many cases and most of them are from an unknown source of exposure where it's not a contact of a known case, or it's not an outbreak in a facility or a workplace or a center where we can really shut the, the place down or really intervene in a very strong way, then we have much worse ability to control it and it could get out of hand. And that's what we've worked so hard to avoid since March. And it would be a shame to, Have our sense of, okay, we're totally sick of it and we think we're done and it worked and it's great. To have all that work be undone by that feeling of, okay, now surely we must be done. The the truth is we're not done. And, you know, on the good side, we know we can do it in BC. We know what worked. Um, Staying away from each other and the distancing measures that we had did really work very, very effectively in BC. And that was great. Um, But they're costly. And Bonnie Henry's slides mentioned this. They're costly for our mental and physical health and for our economy and our finances. So that leaves us in a position of really trying to find the right balance. And it's just really hard to balance on the edge of a knife, that knife threshold. It's, It's really hard to just perch there.
0: So it's, it's a real challenge. And what do you think about moving? And you're right, and, and I think young people are kind of getting all swept in the, with the same brush that it's young people that are going to these parties and are relaxing the rules, when some, yes, but I'm sure there's people in every age group that are, that are doing that as well. What is the concern as we head into the fall, in that we're already pushing to the end of July? We get through August, we get to the flu season. Is there the concern there, too, or does the modelling, are we able to, to kind of look forward and see what could unfold then?
2: Yeah, so I think that's a huge question. Um, the young people I know are very careful and are being very meticulous. That's obviously anecdotal, um, but certainly in my personal experience, it's not. Oh, all those young party kids—they're—they're they're the ones I know are being very careful and. Um, I think one of the advantages we have right now is we can say, oh, you know, go socialize outside. Like, it's great. Outdoor transmission doesn't seem to be a huge risk. It it is known, it probably does happen, but it's much less, we think, than indoor, crowded, loud environments. As we move into all rain all the time, uh, or snow and cold weather across B.C., we won't be able to say that so easily. <laughs> i go see your friends outside, you know, when it's November and <laughs> two degrees and pouring rain sideways. Um, that's going to be much harder. Flu season is an issue. I, I don't imagine there's a ton of flu transmission going on. We've been so distanced, and I think we've probably impacted the flu season quite a lot. So I don't know how that's going to play out. My main fear would be increased contact and increased contact in congregate settings, where people are together in large numbers indoors and talking and eating, dining, singing um, near each other, I think these are huge risks. And some of the key things we do, like high schools, are, are in that category or universities themselves, too. SFU is going to be completely online in the fall, but it's still an issue for students where they would live, You know, dormitories. These places are all congregate settings. The other thing I'm worried about is the U.S. The situation in the U.S. is not under control, and we have a very long and porous border. We need to let Canadians back in. We need um, supplies in and trade with the U.S., and I think that's a huge concern.
0: All right. We'll leave it there for now, but thank you so much for joining us to go through the numbers. I appreciate it. Sure, no problem. Well, if you remember back to when the website for camping came online, people could reserve and get their spots, the website crashed because so many people in BC were looking forward to getting out to doing that staycation, spending some time at home, maybe checking out a different campsite. People did eventually get online and make reservations. As you can imagine, many of the popular campsites filled up quickly. But Global News actually took a bit of a tour on Thursday in the Golden Years Park campsite to area and found a lot of the sites empty. Except for a red tag that had marked them as already booked. So, what's going on with the reservation system and reserving campsites? sites? So, were people doing it, reserving a week at a time and using that just for the weekend, which would go against the rules that the ministry in charge has put in place? Uh, some are wondering if the reservation system for campsites, having to reserve a site, is the best way, or perhaps we should look at going back to the first come first serve. Uh, one resident suggesting that. That is Angela Massey, who joins me on the line now to talk a bit more about this. Angela, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for the invite. I'm glad to be here. Uh, so have you had that to kind of experience, or what's been your experience with trying to camp? Um, so, again, like as everyone else has said, like trying to get on this site has been brutal.
3: Um, throughout, even like through now that the system is working, it's still not, you still look, cannot get access. Um the other part is that our friends have been up there and everything is empty, just like your global news TV said. And then the other part is that, like, basically, our friends were up there. They saw these five sites that were right beside them. They were empty. They had reserve signs on them. They went to the front booth and asked if they could buy those sites for their friends. And they said, no, they're reserved. Someone's coming. And they were empty the entire time. What was supposed to ha- happen according to the new rules is that if the site was not taken within such amount of time, that that would be available on the internet again for someone else to get, and they have left them empty the entire time throughout the season.
0: Which seems like such a shame with so many people wanting to go and to take part and, and go camping. Um, I know that the ministry, or BC Parks said exactly that, uh, what you're saying, that under the park policy, sites are supposed to be held until 11 a.m. the day after the reservation. So if for some reason your car breaks down or you don't get there the day of, you do get a little window, which seems reasonable uh, to give people that buffer. Uh, BC- BC Parks is saying, though, if the site's not claimed by 11 a.m. the day after the scheduled arrival date, the site then can be released back to the reservable inventory or released to first come, first serve. But it sounds like what you're seeing and what the global crew saw was that was not the case.
3: It's definitely not the case. And if you actually even go on to this new um, group that I joined on Facebook called BC RV Camping and Boating Enthusiasts, you can hear all of the frustrations of campers that all through the province, are seeing the same um, the same problem throughout, and nobody can get any sites in the BC parking park system. Sorry.
0: And have you camped in the past when it's been first come first serve?
3: Yes, I'm an avid first come first serve user. I always have been, and that's why Mike and I started this petition in the beginning, and that's why it sort of accelerated since then. So we actually before our coverage last week. We had about ten thousand six hundred signatures on our petition. Now, between my written and my online, I'm at eleven thousand four hundred. These are BC park users that want to use, you know, use the sites on an ongoing basis. Right? They're taxpayers. Um, it's important that we have access and it's fair and equitable to all people within British Columbia.
0: Which is interesting, and and I'm not surprised that it's getting so much attention, but I I guess one of the reasons that the province said that it moved to the reservation system was because they felt, or I guess some people had said the first come, first serve didn't seem fair. Uh, Were you able to, or ever, did you ever find yourself in a scenario when it was first come, first serve that you weren't able to get a spot?
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, and, and that's just a chance that you take, but you just need like a ratio, a fair ratio, right? So basically all I've asked BC Parks and the MLAs is to do a fair public consultation process, a true public consultation process to say, what do what do BC campers want in British Columbia? What percentage is fair? But 100% arbitrary decision to say it's 100% reservable is not fair and it's sitting empty. They're getting their money. They're saving money by not having to clean the site, et cetera. And people are sitting at home and not being able to use
0: the park in their own backyard. And was there any talk, I, I know that there was some speculation that maybe the reason that some of the sites were empty was because of COVID. They're distancing or wanting people to stay away from each other. Have they done any changes because of COVID?
3: Um, so what I did see when I was making my reservation for this summer was that they were not allowing um, like um, two campers on a double site. Like so two two families on a site. So you could book the double site, but you weren't allowed to have two families, like two um, trailers or what have you. That was the only difference I said because I saw that everything else was based on, um, it was normal. Right. So, So we did lose a little bit of inventory then. And then the other challenge that people are having is that a lot of people made reservations. And for some reason, Discover Camping has been dropping their reservations like three or four days before they arrive. And people are fighting, um, trying to get sites and they cannot get hold of anybody at Discover Camping um, because they say they need to contact the head office. And the head office um, does not have a phone number. Hmm. That's that was interesting.
0: uh, Yeah, that's not overly (laughs) helpful. Um, Yeah, because I could imagine if somebody is if their reservation has been dropped or something, or maybe it's been double booked, if two people show up for the same spot, that's not going to end. uh, Well, somebody's going to end very unhappy.
3: Yeah. And and the other issue, too, is that there were sites because of COVID, they were canceled by Discover Camping or B.C. Parks, And then those individuals that had the canceled reservations were not contacted when they decided to re- rebook them. And then they gave them to somebody else that booked it way later than them. So that's not fair either.
1: Hmm.
0: And when and forgive me for I haven't done this. So I'm just not sure of the process. Do you have to pay when you reserve a spot? Do you have to pay or put a deposit down at that point? You have to pay it in full. Okay. And you need a credit
3: card and you pay extra to book it online. If you actually want to call them to ask a question because the system's not working with you, like as you're trying, you're not tech savvy, what have you, they charge you $5 for the call.
0: Hmm. And so people have been doing this. If it is a case of people booking the entire week and they know they're only going for the weekend, but that's the only way they figure they can, they can reserve the spot for the weekend, that's a pretty big investment. It, thinking if they are, if BC Parks is following up with their rules, there's a good chance your reservation could be tanked, unless somehow people have got word that they're not enforcing those rules.
3: Well, all I can tell you right now is everything that I'm seeing on all the, the, the little camping groups that I'm on and what have you, is that they are not enforcing the rules. The campsites are empty, which is a shame because there's a lot of local people that live like within minutes of Golden Ears that would love to even use it just for a few days during the week if that was the option.
0: But we do not have the option. We you go, drive up there, it says campground full, and they turn you around. Hmm. Um, tell me again the petition, uh, where people can access it or if people want to learn more about what, uh, what you are fighting for or hoping for to change things. Where can people learn more about that?
3: Okay, so I have a petition, um, and if you just if you Google um, like, Golden Ears um, petition First "Come First Serve," it's on Change.org. If you Google that, you'll see it there, um, and there's a lot of comments on there to support it. Basically, what we're asking for is a fair public consultation process, like a true one, where you have you know like documented information to support what BC campers want. Um, you look at BC Ferries, they have a reservation system. It's working, and they have a percentage where they block off for first-come, 1st first serve. They've got a percentage for reservations, a large percentage for reservations, but that's fair. People are traveling from all over the province. So we're just saying that you need to have a little bit of room for first-come, 1st first serve. There's a lot of people. When you look at the demographics of our province, we have um, you know, people that are not tech-savvy. We have uh, shift workers. We have um, people that don't have credit cards, you've got students. Those people, I don't, do not know when they can camp or if they can camp. And right now, they've made it so that anyone who does not have a
0: credit card cannot camp during the peak season. All right. Uh, I'm sure more people will check that out uh, for sure. We will uh, stay, uh, we'll check in with you uh, at a later date and get an update on this as well. Angela, thanks so much for making some time with us. Thank you very much. Well, it has been a relatively quiet, and hopefully that doesn't change things if you're superstitious using the Q word. It has been a relatively quiet forest fire season, though, in this province. That has changed in the area just west of Merritt, where a wildfire there has now grown to 28 hectares. And joining me to talk a bit more about this is Madison Smith, the B.C. Wildfire Service Information Officer. Madison, thanks so much for taking some time with us. Yeah, no worries. Uh, So what's the latest on this fire and where is it burning? So, yeah, as you said, the Skiffoon
4: Creek wildfire is burning in between Merritt and Spences Bridge along Highway 8. It is currently 28 hectares in size and still remains out of control
0: at this time. And was it just reported yesterday? Yes, that's right. And seems like it's grown quite a bit since it was so in just in a 24 hour period.
4: Uh, well, it hasn't grown much today. We were um, The update in size was due to more, um, more correct mapping that our crew was able to do on site this morning of the fire.
0: And what kind of terrain is it burning in?
4: So the fire is burning in really steep and rocky terrain along the highway.
0: And uh, from what I understand, then, so a bit of good news is that it's not currently threatening any structures?
4: Yeah, that's correct. Uh, no structures are currently threatened at this time.
0: Uh, Is there any concern, though, with the wind or with the weather in the area that it could change or shift and head towards uh, structures?
4: Um, I can't speak to that at this time just because I'm not on site. Um, But, yeah, our crews are establishing handguard around the fire and delivering water as well to the fire.
0: All right. Do we know the cause at this point?
4: Our fire origin and cause team is still out on site um, investigating the cause of this wildfire.
0: All right. Uh, Was there lightning in the area, though, or do we have any idea what might have caused it?
4: Uh, No, not until they're done their investigation. We won't know what the cause was.
0: All right. Um, And as far as the the fire itself, do you know how many crews are currently working on it?
4: Yeah, so we have uh, two helicopters on site today that are bucketing water onto the fire. Um, As well, we have three of our unit crews. Uh, for a total of 63 B.C. wildfire personnel on site today.
0: And uh, talking about this uh, this fire today, as you mentioned, it was reported yesterday, uh, it does seem like it's been, as far as the forest fire season goes, not a particularly bad one. Uh, how are we doing, or do you know, as far as the number of fires burning in B.C. And, and where we're at with that?
4: Yeah, so up until today, so July 21st, 2020, we've had 48 fires for a total of 151 hectares burnt. Um, This time last year, so 2019, we had 99 fires in the Cowlitz Fire Center for a total of 995 hectares burnt.
0: Which sounds like a huge number compared to where we are right now, but uh, I seem to remember last year, too. And even with those numbers, last year wasn't a particularly bad year either, was it?
4: Uh, no, um, compared to 2017 and 2018, uh, 2019 and now 2020 have been uh, well below uh, 2017 and 2018.
0: All right. Uh, still good advice, though, I would imagine as uh, temperatures are warming up, we're seeing uh, the, the sunshine and uh, the hot weather uh, reminders for people about being careful. Yeah, so um,
4: we've had a lot of substantial rain uh, this spring. So our danger rating has been low to very low. But with this increase in temperature and this nice sunny weather, uh, our our fire danger rating throughout the Canloops Fire Centre is low to moderate with patches of high around Lillouette, Penticton and Osoyoos. So we'd just like to remind folks that uh, if you are planning to have a campfire, make sure it's fully extinguished before leaving the area and make sure it's cool to the touch. A fire isn't completely out until you can touch it with your hands. And also don't burn if it's at all windy because embers can travel in the wind and cause a wildfire.
0: At this point, are there any fire bans that you know of in any of the regions?
4: Um, So I can only speak to the Kamloops Fire Centre. We currently only have Category 3 open fires banned at this time.
0: And what is that?
4: Those are big flash piles, um, bigger than 2 metres by 3 metres.
0: Okay, so for somebody then, if people are going out camping or if they're somewhere where they are having a small campfire, that's, that's okay right now?
4: Yes, campfires are not banned.
0: And I would imagine too, because we're being told uh, to have staycations and many people aren't traveling on, on what they might normally do for summer vacations or staying in BC, uh, more important to get the message out as it's very likely more people will be heading out to, into the, to, to the backcountry and trying to get back to nature?
4: Yeah, so like I said before, just if you are, uh, just remain diligent as our conditions can change at any time. And like I said before, with this hot and dry weather, things will start uh, drying out quicker and the potential for wildfire will increase.
0: Uh, I understand yesterday, or the fire that was reported yesterday uh, was somebody who happened to work for the Ministry of Transportation was and called it in. What should someone do? How does somebody call in a fire if they do see something or they see what they think is a forest fire and want to report it?
4: Yeah, so to report a wildfire, you can call star 5555 on your cell phone or toll free at 1-800-663-5555.
0: All right. And as far as the the fire and merit, I think you may have said this right off the top. But is there any level of containment, or do you anticipate it will be contained within the next day or two?
4: It is still out of control at this time. But like I said before, our crews are working very hard to establish a hand guard around the fire as well as water delivery.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us and for bringing us up to date on this, Madison Smith, uh, fire information officer. Thanks so much for your time.
3: Yeah, thank you. Have a good day.